Looking to provide your school or organization with high-quality audio products at affordable prices? Andreas Communications specializes in designing microphones, headsets, USB adapters, webcams, and more to ensure online reliable communication. Their EDU series of products are built to withstand the rigors of classroom usage. Andreas Communication partners with iTutor to provide an exclusive discount for Learning Can't Wait listeners of 40% off their noise-canceling headsets. Head to https colon forward slash forward slash andreacommunications.com forward slash itutor forward slash today to access this limited offer. IPVO is making online learning simple for educators and students alike. Their affordable and lightweight document cameras let teachers simply plug and play to share anything homework, live demos, PowerPoints, videos, and more from anywhere. Compatible with any device, teachers can make the most of their document cameras with creative filters, time lapses, stop motion, and more through IPVO's free software, Visualizer. IPVO and iTutor have partnered to provide a 20% discount to all Learning Can't Wait listeners. Visit IPVO.com forward slash iTutor to upgrade your technology today. Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, an iTutor production. At iTutor, our vision is to ensure every child has access to education, regardless of circumstance. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space, who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spierbauer. Welcome back, everybody, to today's episode of the Learning Can't Wait podcast. I'm your host, Haley Spearbauer, and joining me today, we have J.W. Marshall, the VP uh, of Marketing at Summit K-12, an EdTech thought leader and a fellow podcast host. J.W., welcome. Haley, it is so wonderful to be here with you today. You know, when I think about people in this space who are speaking often and openly and communicating what they think the future of education needs to be and what challenges are before us. Your name is very high up on that list. Well, thank you. And uh, I, I lose track of how many shows I'm hosting now, but I just feel like these topics cannot be talked about enough with enough different voices and different people. And the conversations are constantly evolving, which keeps it really you know, interesting for us as podcast hosts, because there's no shortage of things to talk about. And it's just really great that the audiences are listening and they're taking these conversations and putting them into action in schools and school districts every day. And it's a really exciting time in education right now. I'm glad you didn't name an exact number of podcasts that you host because by the time this goes live, there could just very well be one more and then the information would be out of date. And we might be doing one together. Who knows? You so, know? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's crossed my mind before. It's crossed my mind. Well, JW, I think it'd be really cool. You know, all of my guests, I asked them this, this opening question because as you know, I'm obsessed with how I built this. Yep. Uh, and so the opening question I ask is, how did you come to be the professional and personal version of yourself? So how did we get to this place where you are this prolific podcast host, you're leading efforts uh, to advance issues in education? How did we get here? Uh, that's a great question. I love that you open with something. I do something similar on my show. Who are you and what do you love about what you do? Just to have 
you know, you never know where the conversation will go when you start with a thought provoking question like that. So how did I get here? My mother was a teacher for 40 plus years. And that's really what gave me the the passion for education. And so as I graduated from college in the late 90s, I was a business major, but I was looking to go into higher ed. And uh, she said, go work in the real world for one year. And if you hate it, you can always come back to education. That'll be your calling. And I was so fortunate to land at an ed tech company that was just starting up called Study Island. And it was- I've heard of it. I've heard of it. Right? They've been through a crazy journey. I kind of saw it all there from 2004 or 5 to 2011, 12. It was just a very transformational time in education then as it is now. And I got to do the two things I love, business and marketing and education, and got to reach educators on a massive scale as a marketer. And so that led me through my career uh, working with EdTech startups. And then really during the pandemic, I did what a lot of people did was start a podcast. I'd never done that before. Listen to podcasts, love them, but never thought, who am I to have these conversations? And as I started inviting my immediate network and then uh, having people show interest in the show and and then big names like Michael Horn and Deborah Quazo and, and people, you know, kind of resonating with it. It just took off. And the next thing you know, 25, 50, 100 episodes and one podcast turns into four or five, seven, you know, different shows. And um, and now getting to speak at conferences and moderate panels and discussions. It just really is something that I've always been passionate about. And this, I love this platform to be able to leverage media for good. And of course, through the pandemic and now coming out of the pandemic, there's so much work still to be done. We've made so much progress in so many areas. And I don't think we can talk about it enough. And and I really love that we celebrate the success that's happening right now. And we don't just talk about a utopian distant future of how it could be. We really try to bring people onto the shows that are in the weeds, that are doing the work, that are seeing success. Because so often you see posts on LinkedIn that say, oh, well, you know, how do we tackle, you know, paying teachers more? And I can say, I just hosted Scott Murray from Ector County ISD in uh, Texas. And here's how he's doing it. He's found these state and federal grants and you fill out the paperwork and then you put in these incentives and now he has master teachers making over 100k and otherwise I would just be complaining with everyone else on you know the problems and so I really feel like you know getting to do this uh, is really a a blessing and a responsibility to you know the audience to really share the good stuff that's happening and you know inspire people but with real life stories is just really exciting for me I really I took from that a lot uh, especially this line you said, leveraging media for good. And, you know, obviously, media and education topics, they they go through their flavor of the week or the month, and there's things that are important, but there are foundational pieces that are ever-present in podcasting, media, marketing. And I want to just talk about that in a second. I want to talk about the current state of affairs and what we're what we have to focus on right now. But before I do, you also named reaching educators. How at a meta, like I'm like at this meta 30,000 foot level here, JW, how do we reach educators? Right? Like ultimately, they are the almost end user of pretty much everything in education. Then they they are and students are. So how do you reach them? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple ways. One is media. 
and think about how do we consume media in our personal lives on Netflix, on TikTok, on YouTube, on podcasts. We have to reach them in different ways. It's not just ed tech companies sending out mass emails anymore and expecting anyone to read them or care. Not building a great website and hoping people come to it when it's very static and all about us, you know, the ed tech company. So I think it is what I found the most successful is providing a platform for the educators, administrators, and thought leaders to share their stories and to share their thoughts with each other and almost to, to get out of the way. So I'm a VP marketing at Summit K-12. None of my shows ever talk about Summit K-12, even the ones that we sponsor. We never talk about ourselves. We never talk about our products. We just want to be associated with the solutions that others are bringing to the table. And naturally, some people will then find our website or they'll say, oh, this must be a pretty cool company if they're uh, helping you know bring these conversations to light in a very non-self-serving way. And, and maybe there is some, some uh, you know, affinity that way, but it's not about us. It's about the people that are out there on the front lines, in the classroom, and the administrators who often you know, get a bad rep, but they're the unsung heroes many times. They're trying to innovate too. They're, they don't want to lose teachers. They want to do the right things by and large. And so giving them, bringing more transparency to what's actually happening. And I think that's a really interesting point through the pandemic that people are being more their real selves. It's not just polished and professional and uh, wanting to look good all the time and brag about all the great things they're doing. People are being much more honest about the challenges that they're facing and what they're trying to do to, to make them better. And some of those things are succeeding and we need to get the word out. Some of those things aren't and we need to get the word on that too so that it saves someone else from that time and effort of something that maybe isn't the best. And as you know, there's a lot of different things you can try now with education technology, with high dosage tutoring, with just different models of education that we're all kind of more open now than we have been in a hundred years to these new possibilities. And how are we all going to figure out collectively what's the best if we don't talk, if we aren't transparent, if we're in a silo doing our own research for two years. And by the time that research comes out, the education's evolved again, and it's almost too late. So I love the fact that this is very real time. You can talk about the same topic 10 times in a year because every month you talk about it, chat GPT, it's going to be a little different. And so you, you, we don't want to go there on this episode, but there are these topics that are just going to keep evolving rapidly, and we have to be consuming these uh, best practices and these thought leadership initiatives in real time, or it's going to be too late to, to kind of implement what we're learning. You mentioned or alluded to uh, what you're calling the great ed tech audit. And this is a topic that in season two of Learning Can't Wait podcast, we talked about often. I talked about it with Abbas Manji of the CEO, or excuse me, the CAO and founder of Kidum. I talked about it with quite a few folks, just this idea that there is a, we're at a saturation point with technology tools. So for you, what is the ed tech audit and how do you see it playing out in real time? Yeah, and I think we've been at a saturation of ed tech tools for 10 years. So this isn't a new thing. This is just something that the, that the pandemic has shown the light on that you didn't realize in your district, 1,500, 1,800, depending on the research studies you look at, number of tech tools used in a district, there's no way you can use all those. So there's redundancy, there's inefficiency, there's uh, one-off things that only one teacher or one school uses, but everyone else is paying for. It's costing us a lot of money. Um, and the biggest thing is it's costing us time right? Even free programs aren't free, right? The time to learn them, do the PD, implement, see if they worked or not. 
Um, it's just overwhelming. And new ed tech companies are coming up every year um, with great solutions. And so how do you find this balance of, well, we can't just use the 10-year-old programs with a lot of efficacy from 10 years ago because they may not be relevant anymore. But do we really want to go with a startup that just started last year? Again, I think media plays a big role in let's amplify the things that are working quickly so that others can know about them. Um, but really, let's look at all the systems we have and take a real honest look. I know it's funny. Every new president always says, I'm going to go line by line and, you know, the whole national budget. And I don't know if it ever happens or not, but districts need to be doing that. They need to be looking line by line. What are the things that aren't even being used first and why aren't they being used? What are the things that are being used the most and are they actually working? It's not rocket science. Find the things that are being used the most. And if they're working, keep them. If they're not still ask why they aren't working, and then look at the bottom, which ones aren't being used at all? Why aren't they being used? Do we need to try them or is it time to cut them out of the budget? And I think very quickly we can make some drastic changes and open up new money for new programs if we take a hard look and kind of tighten our belts around. There's not enough time in the day to do all these things. We need to do kind of quality over quantity and kind of rein this, this problem in. And it's probably going to take a couple of years to phase into that. It's it's going to be tough to do kind of in one year, especially with multi-year contracts. But somebody at the district has to really be taking a hard look at it every day and evaluating the effectiveness. And there are tools out there now uh, more than ever that can help do that, which is really exciting. One thing that you, I think you leave you left off your list that I will talk about till I am blue in the face is you named what is working. But there's this secondary question that I think has to go with that, which is what is working and who is it working for? We know now more than ever that there are uh, there's a huge diversity in the learners in our classrooms, right? We knew that many people in education knew that for a long time, but it is abundantly clear now as we have rising populations of English language learners, more and more students diagnosed with, with disabilities, that not every tool works for every student. And so I would add a point to your list for the next time you share it, what is working and who is it working for? Because if it's working, but it's only working for 9% of your population and it's not working for the rising and growing needs of your English language learners, which I know is a topic near and dear to your heart, Absolutely. then it's not actually working. Absolutely. And, and I think that that reminds me of uh, uh, an article we put out recently about the three E's of evaluating, right? If, is it effective? Is it efficient and is it engaging? And then we crowdsource two more E's. One of them, is it easy to use, which is probably number one. If it's not easy, nobody's going to use it. And I think it was you who said, is it equitable? Um, which see, is I so, do talk about this everywhere. <laughs> so, so important, you know, that it's equitable. That's not just working for some, it's working for all. And we are in a point now, if you got 1800 programs, you can, most of, a lot of those, you know, a fair number will be equitable. And if they're not, they're not going to be the best programs for you. So there's enough programs out there that are really high quality. And I think the last point is it's not good enough just to be good in the software you're using. There's great stuff out there and you need to be going for great. And you need to be crowdsourcing with other districts, with other people around what are the must-haves? What are the things people can't stop talking about? And that's the cream of the crop. And life's too short to, to just have a bunch of average or good programs. Um, and technologies, you need to have the best of the best. And you need to continually evaluate the 5E model now, um, efficient, effective, easy to use, engaging, and equitable. And if you do that, I think you can really, really make a big, dynamic, sustainable change in your district. So what you're naming here applies from the perspective of a school leader. 
And I think there's almost a call to action as a subtext to what you're sharing that applies just as importantly to the product builders, right? The folks on the egg tech side of the house. So how do you apply that message or can you apply that message that you're sharing when they have to call tools? School leaders have to call tools. But what is the call to action for our product leaders or the people building new ed tech tools on the daily? Yeah, and they need to know that good isn't good enough either. That it's, oh, I got this idea and let's make something pretty good. Um, there are companies out there, a lot of them in ed tech that are striving for greatness, that are pulling out all the stops, that are getting that extra investment to make everything as good as it can be. Now, at the same time, I will say it doesn't have to be extraordinary out of the box on day one. And so this kind of goes both ways with those district administrators evaluating companies and the companies themselves is you have to be a company uh, that's passionate about what you're doing and that is continuously iterating and evolving as well. And so I think when you're looking at companies, where were they a year ago, two years ago, five years ago? Are they doing the same exact thing they were doing before or are they constantly innovating? Because we're in this world now where um, things are moving fast. Um, we're gonna talk about acceleration and that's a big buzzword for uh, 2023. How do we accelerate learning? How do we accelerate product growth? How do we accelerate the feedback loops from customers to ed tech companies to continually and you know invest in each other? And this true partnership model versus the old school vendor model of we made the books, we have the experts, the doctorates, and here it is. Good luck. We'll see you in eight years for the next textbook adoption, right? Those days are long gone or should be. And now it is this true interactive partnership. And a company that may have done really well four or five years ago, if they haven't kept up and kept focused, that may not be your best solution anymore. And, and it may be time to, to make a change. And so it's exciting because the end product is getting better and better every day. But it's also a little daunting to think, wow, I can't just set it and forget it. I've used this program for the last five years. Why wouldn't I use it for five more? You got to stay on top of it you know, every year. Well said. Well said. Yeah. The, the feedback loop is one that I think is of particular importance in all of this too. Like you named at the very beginning about reaching educators and having part of building good products that work for students involves educators, educators being a broad term, administrators, school leaders, uh, superintendents, all the way up and teachers, paraprofessionals, the folks that are closest to children on a daily basis. So thank you for naming that. Let's talk about acceleration, right? What is your hope right now for the way that schools are using this technology that exists in their hands or that they have access to, to accelerate learning for students? Well, and my hope for education technology, which is my area of expertise, is that we have finally dispelled all the myths around technology replacing teachers. It was never true. And now during the pandemic, we were forced into a lot of technologies. None of them tried to replace teaching. Technology is there to en enhance teaching and enhance learning. So it needs to be enhancing learning for the students. We need more personalized uh, learning, differentiated learning. Things we've talked about in ed tech for 20 years are actually happening now. Some of that is AI, uh, you know, based in a good way. So we have to look at the learner, but then we really have to also look at equally the educator. Is this easy for them to, to use and pick up on? Is it exactly what they need just in time? Um, not generic content that they have to sort through and, you know, make uh, what they need it. It needs to be exactly what they need. And that comes in that partnership with at tech and with uh, educators and look at education companies that hire teachers, that hire retired teachers, that hire um, educators at different levels, because they're going to speak your language. They're going to know uh, what you need and they're going to know how to connect 
with those in the classroom uh, now and moving forward to keep those feedback loops going. So always look for education companies that are speaking your language because they have education, uh, former educators on their teams, or even current educators that are doing, uh, you know, consulting with them or uh, part-time contracting or, or question writing or whatever it may be, tutoring. It really is kind of these blurred lines of collaboration now, which is going to be the best results for the products, for the educators, and for the students. I cannot stop thinking about this topic of the research to practice gap, right? Like what happens when you implement a tool? So I think a lot about that right now as it relates to accelerated learning and where sometimes it goes sideways. Have you heard people talking about this recently or is it just something that's like living rent-free in my brain? It's not just you. Again, we've made so much progress in the last couple of years with new technology. It's like we have technology to help the technology now. Um, again, I don't want to go into chat GPT, but it's so hard not to. But like, let's do it. Let's dive right in. You can do it so many ways that like, oh, they could students could write the paper, but also you could use it to grade the paper. You could use it to uh, enhance something you've already written. You could use it as a compare and contrast of what you wrote versus the computer. So now there are technologies. So I'm going to leave it right there on chat GPT. There are technologies that are going to help you evaluate the technologies that you're using, which is really exciting because it's a very daunting manual labor intensive task in the past to look at all this big data and figure out what's what and who's working for what students and different student populations. Now we've got the software that can tell us in real time, not just once a quarter, once a year, uh, did it work or not? In real time, you can learn from these uh, dashboards of data in your classroom and as a school and a school district to know. And you can make the exciting thing is you can make the pivots in real time, right? With an individual student in their learning plan or with uh, a campus or with a district. Uh, if you're doing it right, you can see things unfolding in real time and you can not run off the cliff, right? You can make those pivots right away. And that's that's new for educators, for administrators to have this, this power uh, and this visibility. And it's going to take a while to get used to, okay, we don't want to necessarily pivot every day in a different way. Like how much time is enough time to evaluate effectiveness? Um, I think is going to be the next question now that we're getting more tools to to you know do this in real time is figuring out you know how does it work and how much do we put into external studies or studies that companies run on themselves versus our own data and our peer review data i think that's the kind of gold standard we want to get to is that the, the technology is there for districts and schools to do their own evaluation in real time and they start sharing that and there's more peer review data that don't just take the company's word for it or one case study that was picked out of a thousand customers that, you know, this one did really well. And there could have been external factors besides that product, right? But if you start seeing consistent peer review, peer shared data and effectiveness, that's exciting to see we're on the cusp of that as a next step in research efficacy. The drive towards research and efficacy has me celebrating both internally and externally. I have to tell you, having been in EdTech for nearly six years, and having been an educator who regularly utilized ed tech in their school and in their classroom, it feels like everything is coming together like exactly right now. The, the emphasis both nationally at the federal level, the emphasis in state legislature that's being written and codified today, the way that there are organizations springing up with their sole service to be 
efficacy and evaluation, the way organizations are incorporating research in-house, it just, it makes me so happy. It also then connects back to what we were talking about a moment ago, which is if we have to cull tools, how can a school leader, other than hearing from their neighbor or other hearing from the media, what's great, really assess what is impactful and for whom, right? Like that is the question. And if this bend of research continues onward, and I believe that it will, we'll get there. And we have to. We owe it to our our students. I've said this and I'll say it again. We're at an inflection point with this. The learning loss, the unrealized learning is real. And so we can either play catch up for years and try to get back to where we were pre-pandemic levels, or we can innovate and we can change and we can accelerate learning, truly accelerate learning to where not only will these students catch up within the next year to two years, but the acceleration will continue into year three, into year 10. So there is this opportunity of a lost generation of students and learning, or the alternative is the acceleration of learning to where these students at the end of their K-12 careers, at least, will end up learning so much more than they would have had this terrible tragedy and trauma, group trauma of the world not happened in the pandemic because we've truly accelerated learning. Um, And sometimes I am very optimistic, but I get a little cynical when uh, state leaders or federal leaders, you know, talk about this, you know, need to accelerate now. And and I want to say, where was this five years ago before the pandemic? Why did it take a pandemic for us to to want to truly accelerate learning and, and, you know, make U.S., not uh, it's low ranking in the world of education that it is, right? Uh, so I, I get off the soapbox quickly and say, okay, back on track. Let's look at the future. Let's look at the uh, acceleration. And I think we were in the pandemic long enough that it wasn't just a month, a three months or a year where, okay, that was terrible, but let's go back to the way things were. Let's cling to the past. I think we were in it long enough and we saw the benefit and we saw, we got through the hard, you know, forced change on everyone with the technology. And now we can't go back because the genie's out of the bottle. And so I think that's the most exciting thing as you talked about it all coming together right now is that I think there's that sustainability of pursuing acceleration in the right ways for everyone moving into the next year and the next decade. I'm glad you named both the academic component and the social emotional piece, because I think that the predominant kind of dialogue right now is is not in opposition to one another, but it's either talking about academic gains or mental health needs. And I think that those two things are in, I know those two things are inextricably linked. You know, students face, as you mentioned, trauma and trauma affects your brain and it makes it diff- difficult to acquire knowledge. It, it is It has profound impact on your bodily functioning. It's the trauma was for students and for teachers and school leaders and families. So collective trauma, as you described earlier, I'm glad you named both of them. And we really don't have time to waste. Every day we are not uh, like really actively attending to these issues are another day of learning, learning lost, not learning lost, but learning lost for students. Well, and then it's also exciting. The role of technology as the enhancement is it does done right and make us more efficient with our time, which is our most valuable resource in education, whether it's in person or virtual, you know, it's time. And that can give teachers time back in their day to connect relationally with students, to make sure that those SEL needs are met 
while the technology is helping to enhance the academic enrichment, the differentiation, the identifying where the students are strong or weak so that teachers can then spend more time in small group and one-on-one -on -one instruction so that we can free up time in the school day for high dosage tutoring. It all kind of plays together, as you were saying, that you know the technology not only can help uh, the students learn at a faster rate, which is very important, but it can give time back in the day, back to the educators that are for so many years and decades we're just adding more responsibilities and more tasks and more and more and more and more on educators. And that's why we see the burnout and the teacher shortage. We have the opportunity with technology to take some of those things off their plates, creating papers all night, doing lesson plans, having to prep for every um, lecture, you know, especially if you're now teaching something you've never taught before because there's a teacher shortage and you have to cover. So leveraging the technology, the curriculum, the videos, uh, why not watch a video from someone who's an expert in, you know, in that world, um, you know, of physics versus a biology teacher that's been asked to teach physics this semester, right? That's not, that's a disservice to the student. But what that video can't do is build a relationship with that high school student that can't, you know, really get to know them and help them learn how to learn. I think there's two key things here. One, we need to teach the students how to learn. And then almost uh, equally important, we need the educators to inspire those students to want to be lifelong learners. It's no longer a uh, nice to have to be a lifelong learner. It is a must have, not just for students, for all of us. As the world of work evolves, as our world evolves, we have to build that into our students from early ages all the way through high school and college so that they can uh, function and be a good citizen, you know, global citizen um, moving forward. I threw a lot at you right there, but uh, I'm, if you can't tell, I'm pretty passionate about these. Yeah, topics. no, as you should be. And and I'm, I'm like really resonating with these last few points you're making here about creating lifelong learners and curiosity. And I think that this generation is technology savvy from the moment they're born. Likely one of their parents is holding a device, you know, taking pictures of them when they come out of the womb at this point. So, you know, digital natives, like whatever term you want to use, technology has the ability to enhance. You know, I think about my own boys at home and my three-year-old now will say, if I teach him something, we're talking about something science related, he'll go, mama, show me, show me in video. And I'm like, well, yeah, because you're used to me pulling up brain pop or you're used to me getting that geo or you're used to me showing you something because it, that didn't make sense when we were kids. Like I, I couldn't learn the migration patterns of birds by watching a video online when I was three, no less 10, uh, but he can. And he knows that like, oh, it will click more and it will make more sense. And then my older one will be like, mom, we got to take the quiz to see if we understand it. And it's like, wow. My six-year-old knows about formative assessment. Like, that is so cool. And they want to do it. Yes. They're excited about it. Yes. For, and I will name. I have a little bias towards Brain Pop. That was the first ed tech tool that I distinctly recall introducing in my classroom as a teacher. I remember being on a focus group because it was relatively new uh, out, in the, out in the world. Uh, and now there's, you know, so many other players in the space that have that same level of UX design, a high interest, really engaging. But that one was the first I remember seeing. Do you remember your first tool that really sticks out to you? Oregon Trail, obviously, is my generation. So that was one that it's funny, people in my age group, I forget what the exact year bandwidth is, are called the Oregon Trail generation. We weren't digital natives. But we learned it in middle school or high school, 
and became tech savvy at a, at a still relatively formative age. It wasn't post, you know, high school or post college where it becomes harder to learn new things with technology. And so we're kind of the generation that bridges the gap between the old and the new, the, the non-digital and the digital. But it reminds me of, I forget what year it was, but it was the the, the first year that the digital native was official, right? The, the technology was there when this person was born. And now I believe we've crossed into the digital native of the digital native, right? So that someone that was born when the technology was here, and now it's their children. So it's like a double, you know, level of digital native. And I think it's exciting because I think in this younger generation, we're also seeing a more natural responsibility with technology than maybe some of us in the Oregon Trail generation or or younger, where we've We've gone off the rails a little bit with social media and some of these things. And now I think we're finally, and I pray for my kids who are three, five, and five, that this trend continues over the, the coming years, that the they're not hung up on watching what other people do on social media, that they're they're actually naturally leveraging technology for good and naturally putting the phone down or the technology down more often than those in certain generations that have been a little hooked by their own choosing and some by some really unbelievable algorithms and and mass marketing. But it's exciting because we talk about digital uh, citizens. We talk about, uh, you know, digital responsibility, media literacy, that these are really important things that we need to be teaching now. But my hope is that we won't really have to teach them in 10 years from now, because it'll be more unnatural. Of course, you wouldn't stare at a screen for eight hours a day. That's insane, right? These kids are going to be smarter than us in those uh, regards that, yeah, you use technology for this, but you would never use it for that. But those of us that were kind of the first ones to do it didn't know any better. And so I think there's this really interesting sea change of the the just the position of technology in the world as it becomes more ubiquitous, more equitable. I think it's also going to find its place more naturally. And and that's my hope is that we don't uh, have to go through these extremes any any, uh, more because we're getting more tech savvy in a real social emotional learning kind of way, right? That's what's healthy and what's not healthy with technology. Yeah. The brain, the science behind it all, right? So JW, as we're coming to a close on today's episode, I have an ending question I always ask as well, which is what advice would you give a teacher starting their career? I'd love you to answer that, of course. That is a great one. And all right. So, uh, and this is, uh, I don't want to say what date it is and what year, because we don't want to be timed out, but things change. And so my advice may be different uh, later, but right now in this current environment for any teacher, but especially a new teacher starting right now is you have this unbelievable leverage that you don't know if you're if it's your first year teaching um, that teachers have really never had before and that you can be what I like to call an innovation rebel right now and not get fired and not, you know, as long as you have <laughs> interest of your students and you're doing what you think is right, most likely your administration will partner with you and collaborate where they may not have been as open pre-pandemic, but we need you. I'm, 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 I'm begging you. Make the teaching profession what you need it to be for you and your mental health and for everyone else. If all the teachers right now would have the confidence and the and the green light to do that, I think we would see a resurgence of teachers back into the classroom because we've lost our way. We've piled too many things on. We've stressed you out. We've put in all the red tape. 
we've cut through some of that, a lot of that through the pandemic. And right now you've got this leverage where if you did get fired, the district next door would hire you and probably pay you a little bit more. So it's a really big responsibility. You could also mail it in and you could quiet quit and don't do that, please. The kids need you. All of us need you to do this job, but feel the sense of empowerment that you know your students, you know, even if you're first year and you've not done this before, use your instincts, do what you think is the best for the kids. And even if not everything works, because it won't, you'll have some failures, learn from them quickly and keep pursuing what you think is best and sharing those ideas and collaborating with administrators. And we have an opportunity right now, not only to accelerate student learning, but to make the teaching profession what it needs to be, what you, why you got into it, and we need that now more than ever to have a sustainable future for our public education system. You hear that innovation rebels, that term. I'm going to I'm definitely going to credit you, but I'm going to use it with crediting you at the same time. That is that is quite the challenge. I love that. I love the way that you brought it home and tied it to something we didn't talk about, which is the teacher shortage. We'll uh next time. We'll do it next time. We'll do it next time. With that, JW, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was an absolute pleasure interviewing you, hearing you as a guest versus all of my listening of your many podcasts as a listener. Thank you so much. I love being a guest whenever possible. And I've been wanting to be on your show for a long time. So I'm glad we finally were able to get the schedules aligned and make it happen. And uh, we look forward to having you on one of our shows, my shows uh, in the future. And I hope to be back on this one again. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at itutor.com. Grow your teaching staff with just one click. iTutor partners with state licensed teachers from across the U.S. to help schools provide additional instruction to students. Whether you need them part-time or full-time, our educators are standing by to get you started right away. Head to iTutor.com to learn more.